This podcast was produced on Ghana Yurta. We respect First Nations people around Australia and acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, where the Festival Centre is located. We honour their spiritual relationship with their country and we do so in the spirit of reconciliation. I actually think, though, that I've had more opportunities by staying here mm. than I would have, you know, in Sydney or Melbourne. Yeah. And I think, you know, everybody knows everybody in Adelaide. Yeah. Which can be good and bad. Mm -hmm. But I think in the arts, it's a good thing. I think a lot of people are willing to help out each other, you know. I mean, whether it's musicians or other performers, I think we all kind of rely on each other a little bit as a nice community. Hey, Libby O'Donovan here. Welcome to the First 50 Podcast a 50th anniversary celebration of the Adelaide Festival Centre, the home of performing arts in South Australia. This magical venue, which I've had the delight of performing in over the last 25 years, has housed some historical moments and many of my fellow incredible artists. I've been lucky enough to chat to some incredible performers from right across Australia and the world on the First 50 podcast. Kate Sobrano told me about her upbringing in the suburbs of Melbourne. William Barton's journey began in Mount Isa. Rhonda Birchmore started in Sydney. Todd McKenney in Perth. And Nancy Bates swapped fond memories with me about our shared hometown of Broken Hill. And today's guest comes from right here in South Australia and is an absolute icon. Our guest hails from the western suburbs of Adelaide, busked to the crowds of Rundle Mall, was discovered in the hustle and bustle of the Adelaide Central Markets, honed their craft at the Weimar Room on Heinley Street and has become a must-see staple of the Adelaide Fringe. They are much loved for their sass, sequins, stunts and fierce support of the arts in South Australia. And most of all, they are loved for their abundantly feathered, thoroughly glittered, hot pants wearing, accordion touting, larger than life, alter ego, Hans. That's right, dear listener, today you're being treated to a rip-roaring look into the brilliant mind behind the boy wonder from Berlin, Matt Gilbertson. Have you always been a drama queen? I think so, which is not going to shock anybody. Yeah. Always love the attention? Probably. What do your siblings and your parents say? Very, very different people to me. My sister and I are probably similar. I remember my brother was really, really quiet growing up. If the phone would ring, my sister and I would, you know, race to get it. He would rather let it ring out than have to answer it. Yeah. So were you the only performer out of your siblings? I was, yeah. yes. I think my sister studied flute for a little while, but yeah, I was the only performer. And I don't really know where it came from. My dad's a plumber. My mum played basketball for Australia yeah. growing up. So it was, yeah. But you know what? We found my auntie when she was young went to London and was nannying. And I remember the Christmas day or whatever, they would record the conversations and send the tapes over to her, like yeah. cassettes. And when years and years later, when my grandparents were moving, we found all these cassettes and we put them on and everybody is just paying me out and they're going, 
Matt, Kylie's going to marry Jason. Kylie's <laughs> going to marry Jason. Because I thought I was going to marry Kylie Minogue. At the age of three. At the age of three. Oh. I was obsessed with her. I thought she was amazing. I think one of my first performances was, because my grandparents used to manage pubs. Yeah. I did sing the locomotion with the cover band and then got annoyed with the singer because she was trying to sing along with me. And you're like, no, I've got this. I've got it. Stand back, lady. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> Do you think that, I mean, if you were doing that at such an early age, you must have had a natural musical ear. Do you think when you started playing piano at a really early age that you sort of warmed to that musical side easily? I think so. I was always obsessed with the David Jones piano player. Yeah. If ever we went into the city, I was like, that that was the highlight for me. And then that kind of graduated to whenever we would go into Rundle Mall, I'd be like, Mum, just leave me at the CD shop. And I just would spend hours and hours just flicking through the CDs or the records or whatever. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Music was just kind of always around. And interestingly, I always rebelled against whatever my parents were listening to. And my parents listened to, like, cool stuff. You know, yeah. my dad loved Led Zeppelin and, like, Midnight Oil. They always listened to Triple J growing up. Right. And my way of rebelling was listening to, like, the good pop trash. Yeah, like Kylie, Madonna. Kylie, Mad- Spice Girls. Spice Girls. Very big. Well, and it was very big, obviously, when you were growing up. All of that kind of music was right at the forefront of where pop was. Yes. And having a love for it, you seem to have taken that throughout your career, but even throughout your Piano playing. I know you trained classically, but there's a quote from your teacher, your original <laughs> your original classical piano teacher, who said that sometimes you'd be playing classical music and in the middle you'd just break out into some Abba Dancing or, queen or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I was quite famous for that. She used to get really, really pissed off, but she would, you know, get me back on track. Now I kind of wish I took the classical training a little more seriously, <laughs> you know, because now I I would kill to have six hours where you could practice all day, you know, yeah. but, you know, when you grow up and you're working and everything, that opportunity isn't there. But then I think it was a little bit more of a chore and pop music for me was like the treat. Yeah, you know? the fun. Yeah. I think a lot of kids have that when they're studying music because you've got to be yes. self-discipline, you know. It's not like being in a footy team or in a basketball team where you're with your friends mm. and everything. Part of the thing of being, a, especially classical music, it is hours and hours and hours a day if you're going to be serious about it. That's right, it is. I mean, I'm interested to know with that kind of discipline, you started classical piano at the age of five, I think. Yeah. And then you continued on. I mean, you have to practice every single day. Did that give you a sense of self-discipline or was it a struggle as a kid? Uh, a bit of both. Mm-hmm. I know my mum was, she really pushed me. and But also she had that kind of discipline from sport, you know. Yes. She was used to drilling every day and getting up every morning and, you know, all of that. So I think for her, she probably thought, well, this is, you know, just what's required. But I didn't really understand that at the time. I think it it got better as I went along. Also, you know, I think when you're in, especially when I was in primary school and you're probably like the only one who can play piano, it's almost like a superpower, you know? It's like, well, look what look what I can do. And people are, and that's when you realise, okay, this is something 
that. Then I went to Marriottville, which is, of course is a music school, and then you're kind of surrounded by really, really good musicians, and that's when it's like, all right, I better pull my finger out here. <laughs> yeah. Yes, a specialist music school. Yes. And yeah. you're, you're not just the we only one. We got told at the time that it was like Juilliard. Is the Juilliard of Adelaide. <laughs> the Marriottville yeah. High School. Marriottville High. Because I remember one of the orchestras played Fame. And the teacher saying, so this is a song from a movie about a performing arts school, pretty much like ours. Yeah. And then when I saw Fame, I was like, it was not quite like Marriottville. <laughs> we weren't dancing on the taxi as much as I would have loved that. Whether he was spinning around with Kylie or hung up on Madonna, it's easy to imagine a younger Matt building the foundations of his future on a love of pop hits and putting on a show. In fact, his childhood seems to recall those beloved ABBA lyrics. Mother says I was a dancer before I could walk. She says I began to sing long before I could talk. It's clear that Matt's future in the spotlight was obvious from the very beginning. I want to get back to just a little bit about you growing up, starting your music then. You did piano, classical piano. You started that. You had, you know, some practice issues there, but you you continued on. Was it during that period, like you were saying, you know, you could pull out the tricks on the piano, you could start playing and people were noticing. Is that where you first got your love of, oh, people watching me is something that I enjoy? Yes, and also from dance class as well. Oh, yeah. you're kind of the only one at school who could play the piano. But then when I went to dancing, I was the only boy. I think there were two in the whole school. Yep. So it was probably the other thing as well, because if you're the only boy, boom, you're like front, center. Yes. You know. And then I think around this time as well, probably like eight or nine is when I really like started to get into pop music and like Madonna was a very big, you know, we had the, videos and everything and the concerts and I just thought what is this I've never seen anything like it so that's when I was probably you know whenever parents had friends over you know getting all their kids to dress up and everything and making them put on a Madonna concert and then charging the parents you know 20 cents a ticket Mm. it's good to have a business mind in the arts you know yes it is and then I know that you you started to busk, obviously, yes. between year 12 and before going to the conservatorium mm-hmm. in Adelaide. You started busking at the mall and at the central market with a piano accordion. With an accordion. But I, yeah, I bought an accordion from my piano teacher who in the 70s, her and her husband had kind of accordion orchestras. Mm. So there's all these photos of, can you imagine 20 accordions at once? Sounds like... A very beautiful dream, doesn't it? It sounds beautiful. (laughs) It does. So they were moving house and I bought an accordion from them because earlier that year we were in Melbourne and I remember seeing an accordion player playing It's Raining Men and I thought, that's hilarious. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I can learn pop songs on the accordion. And I actually taught myself to play the accordion by busking, basically. Yeah. I think I'd learned two songs and then just kind of worked it out over those Christmas holidays. That was also when 
I remember being able to, you, you're watching people all day, you know? And so yeah. you watch them walk past and then they'd clock what song you were playing and then they'd kind of do a double take and then they'd start talking to you and, you know, can you play this song? Can you play whatever? And that's also when I kind of started, I think I just learned a lot of, you know, from watching people and kind of making up scenarios for them in my head. And yeah. that's kind of, I think, played a lot into playing Hans because a lot of it is, you know, audience interaction and quickly bouncing off them and a lot of that comes from watching people. Yeah. Was Hans something that happened just sort of organically? So what had happened was, what had happened was I was busking on a Friday night in the Central Market and a mutual friend of ours named Catherine Campbell Mm -hmm. was walking past and I was playing Communards, Don't Leave Me This Way. Beautiful. Not the original version, obviously, the Communards version. And she stopped and said, I'm involved in this show on Fridays called Berlin Cabaret, which was at the Weimar Room in the former downtown building on Heine Street. Mm-hmm. And they'd opened it for a fringe festival the year before and kept it going as like a pop-up venue. Yeah, they were doing this show every Friday night and my job eventually became just playing the accordion in the interval of the show. And then Michael Morley came to see it. I think they were rebadging it. I actually think it was for a feast festival yeah. one year and they, yeah. they thought we're going to enter Berlin Cabaret, we're going to register it as part of feast, but we're going to revamp it a little bit. And Michael said to me, you should do something that's not quite a drag queen but is a little bit out there. And so I just kind of put together this costume, which was like a vest and a shirt on top and like hot pants and fishnets down the bottom. And that's kind of where it started. And then from there it was just more sequins got added. I haven't really changed a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is I, Hans, international superstar, sex symbol, accordionist, gossip bitch and Beyonce enthusiast. What about me? to our friends in the Grand Circle. (laughs) Joining us in Parkside, good evening. Hans, we don't think you're flamboyant enough. (laughs) I stand alone. Don't sing along, you ruin it. I loved it. Simon. Simon. Yes, darling. I promise you, I promise you, I perform it on our wedding night. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that's so spectacular about watching you perform is the way that you can interact with audiences. That kind of performance is really unique. Not everyone can do that because anything can happen and some performers like things planned. Yes. Do you love that side of your performance? That is the scary part of it as well because I'm always like, when you're waiting for the show to start, I just want to have like a peek at the audience beforehand, but you can't really because they're going to see you. So yeah, it's that first, usually when I'm structuring my show now, I'll do two songs at the top. And really in those first two songs, I'm like scanning like a radar, Yeah, just working out who's it going to be, who's... Who's also going to be into it, you know, but not into it so much that then they take over. Yes. That's a balance. And it doesn't always go right, you know. Sometimes you start talking to people and then they totally shut down and Mm -hmm. give you nothing. Sometimes they are chatty Cathy's and it's like 
Just remember whose face is on the poster, honey. Like, come on. This isn't your show. It is such a great part of the show and I think. But to me that is the show, you know. It's not right. really singing and dancing and everything. It's That is really the show, yeah. Yeah, and that's the essence of cabaret, I think. Yes. Is yeah. you only see that if you're there on that night. Correct, correct. Yeah. That's what, you know, I always get a little bit frustrated with cabaret shows that are really music theatre, you know. Mm. I, I get a little bit, I don't know, I feel like I'm at a uni lecture sometimes, you know, when it's so scripted and yeah. the performer's almost too scared to, I'm like, look around the room, you mm. know. That to me is what cabaret is, is kind of reacting to what's happening there, what's what's happened during the day, what's happening in the news. That's right. Everything. And that's, yeah. I think if you came to my show from one week to the next, some of the songs are probably the same, but a lot of the content changes every night. Yeah, well, I've seen you after something that, say, has happened politically or yes. something that's a world event and you'll bring it into a show straight away yeah. that night. Yeah. But for me, that's kind of what, if we're looking at the history of Cabaret, yeah. it was the newspaper. Yeah. That's what it was. It was kind of a way of getting information out, but also doing it in a way that isn't so serious that, you know, you can make fun of a little bit, but also make a point. You can take some really serious subject matter and make a really serious point. With a joke. With a joke. 100%. It's incredible to hear about the evolution of Matt's alter ego, Hans. From a fun character developed during his busking days at the Adelaide Central Markets to the show-stopping, disco-dancing Berlin boy wonder who wowed the judges at America's Got Talent in 2018. This sudden rise to international attention could have meant a relocation to anywhere in the world. However, despite his global fame, Matt kept his life firmly planted in his beloved South Australia. And I'm keen to know why. What is it about Adelaide that's kept you here? Well, it's a very easy place to live. Mm -hmm. Let's just be honest. I like getting a park at the front. Yes. I like being 20 minutes away. You know, even though I was late for this today. I actually think, though, that I've had more opportunities by staying here mm. than I would have, you know, in Sydney or Melbourne. Yeah. It's probably easier to stand out from the crowd here because mm-hmm. there's not as big of a crowd. And I think, you know, everybody knows everybody in Adelaide. Yeah. Which can be good and bad. Mm-hmm. But I think in the arts, it's a good thing. I think a lot of people are willing to help out each other, you know. I mean, whether it's musicians or other performers, I think everybody, we all kind of rely on each other a little bit as a nice community. Yeah. Did anyone give you any advice as you were starting your career that you have carried through, that you've remembered or that sort of sticks out to you as, wow, that was a real sort of turning point? I've been given a lot of advice. (laughs) I bet you have. (laughs) Unsolicited and I don't know if I've taken all of it. I think, you know what, Frank Ford, actually, I remember way in the early days, said, you know what, all the audience banter is really fun, but make sure you're not really picking on them. Make sure that the joke is always on you. And I hope that's what I try to do, you know. Yeah. I think if the joke's on you first, then it does give you license to, I mean, if I'm making fun of somebody's outfit, but I'm dressed head to toe in feathers, 
who's the joke really on, mm. you know? Yeah, Frank was very, very supportive for a very long time. And actually, the last time I saw Frank was we were at the airport on the way to audition for America's Got Talent. Wow. And I was like, Frank, I've got to tell you where we're going. We're going. And he was like, oh, my gosh, you're going to love it over there. I just saw Ricky Martin in Vegas. And was, <laughs> yeah, so he was a very, very big supporter. Who I met him through Catherine and through the Weimar on the first night of the Weimar Room. Yeah. I worked, so... I can imagine he would have been at the Weimar Room checking that kind of thing out because it was underground, it wasn't well-known and it became this almost urban legendary cult. cult. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It was something you wanted to be at but only if you knew about it. Exactly. What about, what would you say to someone who wants to delve into cabaret and they want to start looking at an alter ego like you have Hans? I would say get the hell out of my way. I'm mm. not finished yet and I don't need the competition. No. Sure. I, do you know what? I, I look at like the way we started and a lot of early shows that I was putting on myself, obviously at Fringe and everything, but I feel like festivals have grown so much now that mm. I really don't know how I would start and try to build a profile now. Yeah. Other than, I don't know, social media or whatever. But, you know, a lot of the things that we did. Although, I don't know. I still think a lot of the things that we did in the early days would probably work now. Like, I remember we used to call pubs and nightclubs and everything and say, can we just come and, like, sing five minutes of a song in the middle of the And we'd go in and then we'd fly, 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 fly. I don't know. If I was at a nightclub now and somebody did that, I'd still think that was pretty cool. You would do that for one of your shows? Yeah, during oh. Fringe. Yeah, and we would turn up in costume everywhere. Yeah. I remember if there was a media launch or what. It yes. didn't matter if it wasn't my media launch, you know, a fringe program launch, everything. It was like go and go in costume. Yes. Always. Go as Hans. Mm-hmm. And is Which it can be a bit of a drag sometimes, <laughs> but. <laughs> I want to know how long does it take to get from Matt Gilbertson to Hans in terms of costume makeup? About an hour. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Sometimes a bit longer if you're really, you know, wanting to do it properly. But yeah, on average, I think it's about an hour with the makeup and everything. And is it true your mum makes all of your costumes still? She still makes all of my costumes. And, you know, a lot of people, Libby, they say, do you pay her? What's the deal? I give my mother, my mother something that money can't handle, which is a purpose. <laughs> and I think she's enjoyed that, you know? I mean, since the basketball career in the 80s has stopped. Well, you know, okay, well, here's the tragic part about all of that. The year that I was born, my mum was actually meant to go to the Olympics. Oh. 1984, Los Angeles. Oh, gosh. So she really did. Make a sacrifice. Make a sacrifice. And now she's sewing hot pants for Hans. <laughs> and loving every minute. And loving it. every moment. <laughs> That's right. Do you have any sort of daily practice? I mean, you're very, very busy. You're constantly doing all sorts of things, not just performing, but there's the other side. There's the constant sort of PR that you have to do and the constant rocking up to things or television appearances. Yes. What kind of daily practice do you have to keep you know yourself what? grounded? I feel like I should have a bit more of a routine, but also you're talking to me like we've just I've just got home from like tour yesterday. And yeah. so I feel like every day has been different. Yeah. But I like being on tour as well because that is a bit more of a structure. It's, you know, 
That's driving true. to a different place every day. And then when you get to the theatre, it's kind of everything's in, you know, order. We do the sound check. We do the, you know, we get ready at this time, have dinner at that time. Yeah, I feel like I'd, I should have a little bit more order in my downtime, though. Maybe that's something I can take from this. Maybe that Thank is. You. Whatever See? you want. Learning every day. <laughs> Learning every day. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things you've done here at the Adelaide Festival <gasps> Centre. Yes. Do you remember what, your first performance here? I, well, I do because our dance school used to have our concerts here. And I think we were mm-hmm. one of the only dance schools that did that and it was like a big deal because, yes. you know, growing up in Adelaide, it was only the big shows you would see at the Festival Theatre. Yes. It would be like, you know, the big musicals mm-hmm. or a famous person. And then I remember when we started at this particular dance school, oh, my God, they're having their end-of-year concerts at the Festival Theatre. It was like a huge deal. And I remember, I think the first year we did it, they had dry ice on the stage and I was like... I feel like Beyonce, yeah. even though she wasn't Beyonce back then. But I also remember <laughs> there's an orchestra pit around the corner here and during the day we would have our rehearsals all day and, and there was like, don't go in there, there's ghosts in there. You know, the, yes. all of those sort of stories that kids tell each other and yeah. 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 And how old were you? I think I was 10. Yeah. So I actually started a little bit later. Like, you know, most kids start dancing at five or Mm -hmm. even earlier yeah but yeah I started at 10 and I'd been to see a lot of shows here before that I think I remember one of my first shows was seeing Hot Shoe Shuffle with Rhonda Birchmore yes and David Atkins and Adam Garcia was in that and I remember the the night I came to see that show there was actually a, a blooper David Atkins did like this big turn on this Lamp post and the lamp fell off and they tried to keep going and Rhonda just went, stop, stop, stop. We can't pretend that that didn't happen. And I just was like, oh, this is great. This is like, you know, they were both crying with laughter and then I watched them pick it up and work out how they were going to do it. But that's the thing I remember about that show, which was, you know, when something goes wrong, yeah. say it. It's yeah. okay. Yeah, you that's know? right. It's actually better than like, do, 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 do. we're not going to pretend that there's a lamp post on the ground. It is Again, that's cabaret, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's mm-hmm. being able to to talk to your audience to say, "Hey, we're all here. We're all in the same room. If the sound's going wrong, point it out. It's all right." Have you, know? you got any stories like that? From I'm sure. Oh you Oh my would. god! Once my costume caught on fire. Yes. <laughs> How did and that happen? And I didn't realise it was happening. I had this feather kind of situation going on. And there was a candle oh. and it went up. In fact, and I didn't know what was going on. And everybody's kind of pointing at me and I'm like, yes, I'm killing it. <laughs> I almost was killing it. I yeah. almost was killed. So, yeah. What I did you do? I remember ripping it you... off yeah, was... and going, and I heard the flames oh. go like this. <laughs> and somehow it was put out. Spectacular. Yeah. When they first laid the foundations of the Adelaide Festival Centre, I wonder if the planners and architects imagined the many moments and memories that would fill its halls and stages, the ghost stories that kids would whisper back and forth, the stage-born legends that would captivate up-and-comers in the wings, and the dreams that would come to fruition under the heat of a spotlight. Hearing Matt talk about his own beginnings and growth at the Adelaide Festival Centre seems to capture completely the experience that so many others have had here. 
and I've got no doubt it's played a role in Matt's fierce support of the arts in South Australia. What's your favourite room to play here at the Festival Centre? Well, I only performed in the Dunstan the first time this year. Oh, yeah. And I really like that. Yeah. It's nice there. I like the, you know, it's intimate but still big. Yes. But, you know, I think the Festival Theatre, it's it's always exciting when you're performing on that stage. I remember the first time I performed as Hans on that stage was for the gala, Cabaret Gala in 2013. And I just remember being really, really scared. And Kate Sobrano holding my hand on the side of the stage. She goes, don't worry, you can, you can only see the first few rows anyway. And then it's all dark, which is true. Yeah. But, yeah, I think whenever you're performing in the festival theatre, it's always exciting, you know. I think it's because we've grown up with it and, you know, I think of all the things that I've seen happen on that stage that whenever you're there as well, it's, yeah. it's cool. And it's, and it's big, you know. And backstage is big. It just feels like, wow. And do you love that? I mean, you've performed in small, intimate settings where you've had just, say, a piano player mm-hmm. or just yourself and then you've performed with entire orchestras. Do you have a favourite or do you love it all? I do love it all. It took me a long time to get used to, you know, the transition of playing in bigger. But once you work out, it really is the same. And if you can think of those bigger rooms like a smaller room, it makes it a lot easier yeah. for you, you know. I think if you treat them all the same in your head. Yeah. Have you got any favourite memories of your performances here? One of the favourite ones I think was only a few years ago, which was hosting the gala for the Cabaret Festival yes. with Alan Cumming. Amazing. you know, he's quite spectacular. And he was really, really – I thought he was a great artistic director because, you know, he was – I think part of that role is really talking to the people and, yeah. you know, saying, go see that, go see this. And I thought he was really good at that. Kate Sobrano and David Campbell as well. Yes. I remember Kate was on every stage. Yes. Hocking every show. Yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely say performing with Alan Cumming that year was a wonderful highlight for me on stage. Off stage, you know what? I remember going to see a production of Wizard of Oz when I was really, really young and we knew a girl who was one of the munchkins because she went to Barbie Jane Dance School. And her photo is still on the wall Brilliant. in the corridor here. I love walking up and down the corridor and seeing all the past performances. Yes. I still love that so much. That's one of the great things about this theatre. And what do you see the future of Hans Who to be? bloody knows? I did not know I would still be doing it at this point. So I just take it as it comes and, yeah. As long as people keep buying tickets, yeah. then I'll keep doing it. Yep. I shouldn't say that because then they, they might stop, you know. They'll go, oh, this is our only chance to make him stop doing this ridiculous show. <laughs> but it is so fun and it enhance the alter ego that you have can really work in so many settings. You can host, you can perform, yeah. you can be on TV, you can do intimate, you can do huge. It is, it's such a fun character to play. I think... You know, I, I grew up, got, my my mum and my gran used to take me to see Bob Down. Oh, yes. At Fringe, like every year. And I, you know, a lot of Hans is a lot, he has a CD and a few, last year he wrote, he, he signed it for me, went, here, have the jokes. Like this to me. 
say we always say that Mark has left me all his jokes in his will. He just didn't expect me to start using them before he was dead. <laughs> so you know, I look at performers like him, Barry Humphreys, obviously. Yeah. Even like Effie, I remember her being yeah. a big thing when we were growing up. Norman Gunston, you know, and I think obviously we have a more of a culture of character comedy in yeah. Australia, more so than in America, I think. Yep. You know, I think America, they kind of get the idea of drag queens, but a character is like, I mean, you know, the number one feedback I got when I was on America's Got Talent is, why doesn't he understand Heidi Klum speak when she speaks German? I'm like, <laughs> it's kind of the point, honey. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of what's going to happen in the future, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> How did you deal with that kind of feedback? Because, I mean, all performers get criticism yes. and they get praise. Yes. I think the trick is you have to take both the good and the bad in the mm -hmm. same way. I don't think you can believe the really, really good reviews and I don't think you can believe the really, really bad reviews. I think as a performer, mm. you need to identify four or five friends or fellow performers who you really trust True. and kind of listen to them. Yeah. I think everything else is lovely or horrifying, but, yeah, I think you kind of have to block it out a little bit as well. Yeah. And trust yourself. True. Right. But in terms of, you know, the like the trolling feedback, I think it's great because I'm, I'll look at it and I go, this is going to be fantastic for the show. Because, yeah. <laughs> again, it's all real, you know. They're all real things that people said and we get to laugh at the ridiculousness of it. Yeah, you that's know, right. At the end of the day, they're having a go at a fictional character. So <laughs> Jokes on someone. Jokes on someone. That's right. Sharon from Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. I heard an interview where you said that you love to be grateful for every day. Did I? You did. It was really lovely. Actually. Really? And I was going to ask, you know, is gratitude something that keeps you buoyant in your career that, that keeps you going? I hope so. I just, you know what, every time it gets very, obviously every job has a time when you're like, for God's sakes, but my number one motto is, well, this show beats working for a living. Let's be very honest. Yeah. You know, there are many, many jobs that are a lot harder than getting up and putting on a fake German accent. And so I think I'm very, very lucky in many, many ways to be able to do what I do and to be able to do it where I do it and, you know, with good people. And I'm so grateful that people come and watch it. Like, to me, that is, that blows my mind. It's, you know, it's kind of, how the hell did that happen? You yeah. Know? How did I not only convince myself that this was a good idea but then convince other people as well? Well, there's a level of confidence that you carry about you, not just as Hans but as Matt, and I think people are really endeared to that because it makes people feel comfortable. Oh, that's nice. I haven't actually thought about that. But, yeah, I think a lot of it is a bit of a show but <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Hopefully there's something sincere hopefully there. Hopefully there is <laughs> a little bit of sincerity. Yeah. Yeah. And when you when you put a show together, how do you come up with the concept and where do you start? Because you're a musician, so do you... A lot of it, uh, yeah, most, most of the time it comes from a musical yeah. place. Yeah. Usually it's, usually it's the songs first yep. or a theme mm -hmm. and then it kind of goes off from there. The structure then kind of is a little bit 
similar each you know i know what works now so you kind of try to replicate that but in a different way you know so it's different enough that people think they're getting a new show yeah (laughs) um yeah i think it's either it's either a musical theme or current events or you know something political or something like that yeah but yeah generally i would say it's usually the songs first and then it's the audience who comes that makes the show. That is like the whipped cream on top yeah. of the ice cream. Yeah. Yeah, where everything kind of falls in place. But again, I'm always the most nervous on an opening night because really our opening night, because the audience is such a big part, the opening night is really the dress run for me. It's like the first go at it. Is this going to work? You're going to get the reactions yeah. in this spot, in that spot. You know, you don't really know until you, until you do it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, once the first show's done, I'm always so much calmer. My God, I'm a wreck before the first night. You're a wreck. I'm a wreck. You're a wreck. And then after the first night, you are... It falls into place. Yeah. Yeah. Happy and... Slowly, yeah. Once you go, okay, that worked. <sighs> and with the trusted people that you have, that you trust yes. to tell you, is this show good, is this not, do they always come to the... First nights or you... They're, yeah, usually in the first few, yeah. That's so good to have them. Yeah. I would say my mum is actually a big one as well because yeah. she does not sugarcoat it. Like if something's wrong, she'll definitely tell me. She's not one of these stage mums. <laughs> like, yeah. Even though she's making the costumes and whatnot, she, she's very honest in her feedback. And I remember in the first years of us doing the show... I would send her into the toilet afterwards and make her just listen to fe- people's feedback yeah. because that is where, mm-hmm. especially, you know, the female's toilet, that's where everybody's being the most honest that's- and they're talking about the show and what did you think and what it, that's where we would get the feedback. Yep, and she'd come back and tell you. Yep. What do you think an arts centre like this, the festival centre, means to Adelaide? Well, I think for audiences, first of all, having somewhere like the Festival Centre is so important. Mm. You know, having a centre of excellence really is so important and knowing that whatever you're going to see at this place is top-notch, you know. I think that one for the community is really important and I think it's also important for performers, techs, you know. I think if you're working here in sound, lights, whatever, you know that they're the people that are at the top of their craft. I remember when we were at school at Maryville, the Juilliard of Adelaide, Jane Rosetto came to speak to us. And she's, of course, head of sound, who's been working at the Festival Centre for, I think it's about 600 years now. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, she came and gave us a full talk about, you know, there are so many other jobs in the performing arts and this is one of them. And Having a centre of excellence is what this place is. I think we've got such a great history in this theatre. I would love to see it continue and have it as a leader in not only the state but also in the country. Yeah. Oh, look, it's such a joy to speak with you and knowing you personally, you're such an energetic, happy, beautiful man as Matt Gilbertson, obviously, and an incredible performer as Hans. Well, you too. Not as Hans, as no. you. But, you know, you've been somebody I've looked up to from a very, very long time. I think I still have my flat on your Baccarat CD somewhere. Oh, gosh. I don't have anything to play it in, but no. I've still got it. Just hang it on the trees and the birds exactly. are held. <laughs> How fabulous. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Libby. 
South Australians are renowned for their appreciation of homegrown talent. It's so inspiring to see people who went to the same school, shopped at the same market, partied at the same clubs, performed in dance recitals on the same stages as us, make it at a global level. And Matt, with all the superstardom of his Hans alter ego, remains staunchly supportive of the South Australian art scene. It's one of the beautiful things about this arts industry. The cyclical nature of giving back, supporting others, and creating an environment in which new talent can grow. And it all happens here, in the heart of the arts, in this festival state, at the Adelaide Festival Centre. If you enjoyed this audio experience, rate the podcast and share it with your friends and family so we can all enjoy the rich cultural experiences South Australia has to offer. In the meantime, if you need an entertainment fix, why not see a show? You can find out what fantastic performances are currently showing on the Adelaide Festival Centre website and social media. Search Adelaide Festival Centre or follow the links in the episode description. I'm Libby O'Donovan and you're listening to The First 50 Podcast, produced by Solstice Podcasting and the Adelaide Festival Centre.